0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Undercovers for April 2019, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Robin Green about her book, The Only Girl, My Life and Times on the Masthead of Rolling Stone. In 1971, Robin Green had an interview with Jan Wenner at the offices of Rolling Stone magazine. She had just moved to Berkeley, California. She thought she was interviewing for a clerical job. Instead, she was hired as a journalist with irreverent humor and remarkable nerve. Green spills stories of sparring with Dennis Hopper on a film junket in the desert, scandalizing fans of David Cassidy and spending a legendary evening on a waterbed in Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s dorm room. In the 70s, Green was there as Hunter S. Thompson crafted fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And now with a distinctly gonzo female voice, she reveals her side of that tumultuous time in America. Brutally honest and bold, Green reveals what it was like to be the first woman granted entry into an iconic Boys Club, I began my interview with Robin Green by asking about that famous and notorious cover story about David Cassidy back in one thousand nine hundred and seventy two I wondered if it was her idea to pursue the interview with David cassidy.
1: I was always assigned stories. I, I came up with very few myself. they just kept me busy at one thing or another but um, I guess Jan figured with my ironic tone I was the person to handle this uh, assignment. Um, because, you know, it was kind of sad, <laughs> you're yeah. saying. But it was, it was kind of a sad story. And, uh you know, really a story about the teen idol business. And um, it just, uh Jan matched me up with it. He thought I was suited to it with my ironic tone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, he knew I would do a thorough job, too, because... Um, you know i was paid by the word so <laughs> ah. he also knew i'd be fascinated by the whole business of, of david cassidy and and it would be more than just a sort of celebrity interview yeah
2: yeah so you just you had to accept all your assignments for the most part at rolling stone You're, you you never were able to give your own ideas to Jan or whoever uh, uh, your superior was at Rolling Stone?
1: Well, it wasn't a question of had to. It was a question of, oh, that sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I want to do that. I mean, the only thing that I really didn't have a feeling for, and this is is probably why I'm not Hunter Thompson, is because the politics, I, I, I I had even forgotten the, the article that I'd written on politics, but apparently I'd, I'd done a lot of, like, field work in the 72 election in George McGovern's run. Um, but I wasn't interested. I just wasn't bent that way. That wasn't my beat. Um
2: well, let's, let's go back to your early days. Tell me about your family. and Were, were you were you destined to become a writer? Or did you have this burning desire to be a journalist that been ever since you were a kid?
1: Not a journalist. I mean, they didn't have that then, you know, yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. for a girl, really, that yeah. I knew about. Um, there was no journalism course at Brown University where I went. That um, was in those days, in the early days, in the olden days. <laughs> But um, uh, there was no journalism class, and I really didn't, even though the New Yorker was probably, well, it was the New Yorker time and life were in our home, and that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, it never occurred to me that I could write these articles. It just wasn't in my mind to do that. Although, when I saw, I did enter a, a fiction writing contest at um, Mademoiselle magazine when I was in college. I didn't win, so I, I, I never... Tried again, <laughs> but that was my, my only foray into magazines. Uh huh, uh
2: huh. And what? Where did you start working once you got out of Brown? Where? where was it, what was your first job?
1: Oh well, it was a fabulous job. I was a waitress at Louise Cake. Louise Cape King Restaurant in uh, Martha's Vineyard. (laughs) Uh And I was there with my boyfriend uh, at the time, and uh, we stayed until October, late October, or even November. We just didn't want to leave. It was so great. You know, we lived above the restaurant right there in Eggertown. Um, So my parents were wondering why they had bothered to send me to college if I was going to be a waitress. But I was very headstrong, as so many of us were in those days, you know.
2: Uh, it was
1: the yeah. 60s, right? Oh, That's God. A, yeah.
2: No, well, no, I, I mean, I grew up then, too. I'm, t- I'm turning 64 myself.
1: Oh, okay. Month,
2: and, you know, and yeah, I went to the University of Michigan, and my parents probably shook their heads when I was thrilled about landing a job at a brick-and-mortar record store. I thought that was the <laughs> coolest thing. And I still do. I, think it's I know. Cool. I, I do, too. I, I, I got my background in music, and my full-time gig is doing morning drive radio in Ann Arbor, so it all... It all uh, worked out, but it probably it wasn't. Out. Yeah, it probably wasn't thought of too highly, I guess, at the time. How? Where were you in in your life when you started to work for Stan Lee at Marvel Comics? How how many years um, uh, after you got out of school did you get that? No, game? right.
1: Yeah, well, it was just the very next winter. Um, my boyfriend and I moved to Boston. We okay. broke up. I went home and cried for a month, and then I moved to New York. <laughs> so uh-huh, uh-huh. that was about it. Um, and then um, I was looking, you know, for a job, any job. Pub, you know, in publishing. I wanted to be in publishing and that's where the employment agency sent me. Two advertising firms and, uh, and, uh, Marvel Comics. And I wasn't going to be a madman girl, you know. That yeah. didn't appeal to me at all. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I ended up being Stanley's secretary. I was just lucky. He was great. He was sweet.
2: Yeah, I was just to ask you, he seems like such a nice man. I know it's, they had some issues with, uh, some uh, tough things in his uh, in his life, but he, he seems like a really delightful human being, and that, that that's true, huh?
1: Kind of uh, innocent in a strange way. I, you know, I read about what's happening to him now, and it makes sense. He was just kind of innocent, kind of yeah, nerdy,
2: true. you know. <laughs> he, trusting individual, a trusting well, person,
1: not, not a streetwise kind of guy. Hmm. You know, a G whiz kind of guy. Yeah, uh, yeah
2: yeah yeah um, sweet mhm so how did you go from Marble Comics to uh to Rolling Stone? How did that all
1: happen? Well, you know how it was in those days, and so I guess another my my old boyfriend, my real boyfriend that came through town and took me to Montreal for the weekend um and um uh, we couldn't buy a plane ticket home, so i I went back to Chicago with him in the car. <laughs> I just left my apartment and my job, and called Stan, and he just didn't get it at all. You know, no two weeks' notice, nothing after nine months. Um, Uh He kind of—I could see him scratching his head. (laughs) uh, And my parents, those those poor souls—they—they went down to New York and took my bed and my suitcase out of my apartment and took my cat too, was a good friend, and (laughs) they just took over that life for me, and I just moved on, and then you know david wanted to my boyfriend wanted to move to the bay area and i did too i started reading rolling stone and really listening to music well before that even right i mean the music was so great in those days wasn't it oh god the best yeah. it was great you know it was yeah. just uh and i really loved the i loved the singers i loved reading about them i really wanted to know like what Neil Young, well it wasn't Neil Young though, then though, but it was certainly John Lennon and I wanted to know what he thought. I wanted to know all about Eric Clapton. <laughs> you know, much mm-hmm. of the, in the way that I now care what Bradley Cooper thinks. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah <laughs> there was yeah. a wonderful article this, this uh, Saturday, Sunday in the Times, in the New York Times art section about Bradley yeah. Cooper. And uh, yeah. uh, I can't wait to see a star is born, you know, a lot for the music. I know I'm going to love it.
2: Oh, me too. I mean, you've probably seen the the trailer, and I fell in love with it just in the two minute trailer. I okay exactly, it, it's won me over. I, I I can't wait. So your your first make your first major piece on Rolling Stone was about about Marvel Comics and
1: Stan Lee, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I met with Jan. I'd gone to Rolling Stone to get a job as his secretary, because that's what my experience had been so far in in the world, that that was what would be available to me. But um, the man that I talked to there had heard from a friend of mine that I could write, that I was a writer at Brown. So he arranged for an interview with me with Jan Wenner. And Jan, you know, was very curious about Marvel Comics, and this was when Marvel Comics was sort of off the radar, as far as I was concerned, anyway. But he really understood that it would, it would, it was a cultural phenomenon, or would be, and it certainly is now. So he was really prescient in that. But he wanted to know about what it was like to work there, and he, he said, "Well, if you're going back east, which meant he wouldn't pay expenses, if you happen to be going back east, write an article about it." So I did and they put it on the cover um, and that was that um, yeah. it wasn't the first thing published because um they held it for the summer because it wasn't a typical rolling stone cover so they wanted to save it when uh, the advertisers the advertisers wouldn't mind so much but um i guess rates are cheaper in the summer it but was, uh, um, i had like a, i started waiting then after that you know after after my article was accepted they just sent they kept me busy constantly as constant as anyone was in those days, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the the experience you had with uh, Dennis Hopper uh, is is as completely insane as I I could probably imagine. Tell tell us a little bit about trying to write an article about Dennis Hopper and oh, probably God. the the most in, in preposterous time in his life. I I still don't know how he lived through this period of the the last movie.
1: Yes, and that's what I was witness to, and it was awful. It was terrible. I never see that. It. Well, it's it's out again. You know, it's, uh, we're teaching them. My husband and I are spending the semester teaching TV writing at the University of Iowa, and there's a you know cool film, art um, film house here, and, and they were playing the last movie. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's like my my past would circle around. To yeah, yeah. Like me in the tush, you know. Yeah. But, uh, uh-huh. um, there was Dennis Hopper back again. You know, I met him years later on the set and, uh, he had, he didn't remember the whole thing at all. And how could he? It was just like so loaded and out there and it, it just way out there, way out there in, in a bad territory and living in Taos, New Mexico and, and, uh, just left too much to his own devices.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I was a shy girl and scared and, and a lot of Hollywood people were there and underground press and it was just totally intimidating and horrible. And, uh, I wrote about it. And, uh, and ha. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what were some of the other, uh, major pieces? Pieces that, you know, even though these have been assigned to you that you're the happiest with, with Picky and Stone, and Robin. What if you name oh, another no. couple?
1: Well, I did, a, Annie Leibovitz and I spent a few days in a whorehouse in Nevada when nobody really knew about the Mustang rants and all of that. We stayed at the whorehouse and also at um, Joe Conforti's house. He was the, 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 the head pimp, in the uh-huh. pimp of the whorehouse. It was legalized. So it was about legalized um, prostitution in Nevada. And that was a nice cover that she shot. And then, you know, I did some work also um, on cults and before Jim Jones. So Jim Jones was hardly a surprise to me. And they're published. I don't know what I can say on your program. They're, but oh, they're, we can go ahead. Okay. Well, we the, can article, we can. the article is published in, uh, along with David Felton's articles on uh, Jim Madison uh, and uh, a, a group in Boston um, in a book called The Mindfuckers. And, and it really didn't sell that well. <laughs> you know, huh. Because people couldn't really ask
2: for it, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I think
1: it's still around somewhere, you know. It's I think it's it's used in some journalism classes, I think. But all of it was a precursor to Jim Jones, which came later and was not a surprise. Yeah, you no, know, it was just the sort of thing afoot then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So, what led your uh, your dismissal from from Rolling Stone, or did uh, uh, you? you know, get uh, John Wetter pissed at you for something? What, what exactly happened that made you leave there?
1: Well, I didn't leave there. I actually published after that. He just took me off the mask as, like, a sergeant oh, being stripped of his stripes, you know. Oh, my. Because mm-hmm. it was really, it was a story I didn't like. Um, because I'd spent months on it, and uh it would have really been the story that put me on the map, you know, um, I mean, I was on a small map. I was known by other magazines, but in the world of, let's say, Time magazine or the general world, I wasn't known. And, you know, I was trying to do an article on the children of the slain uh, Robert Kennedy uh, Sr. when he was running for president. And uh, it was a couple of years after his death, I think. And I was supposed to interview his children, or the grown ones anyway, and i I crossed a, a journalistic line, let's say, with one of them <laughs> Yes, uh, yes, okay. okay, I slept with Robert Kennedy Jr, but um I didn't want to write about it. I didn't want to become famous for that. And now yeah. have something to mind, you know, but
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, know. It was a little worse Back weird, then,
1: but. I just um I was ashamed i was I was uh, embarrassed, I guess, more than ashamed. I didn't feel much shame, I don't think, but I was embarrassed. And I knew I shouldn't have done it. And I didn't, I didn't, and so I never wrote the story. And and, uh, Jan and I were in Israel. I was there for another magazine doing something. And he was there, you know, helping a friend dedicate a wing of the museum to his parents or something. And he wrote a nightclub and he told me if I didn't hand the story in that he would kick me off the mask bed. And I said, okay, because I really, like I said in the very beginning of our conversation, I didn't really want to be a journalist it wasn't my dream I, I don't know what my dream was exactly but um, I didn't mind I'd had enough I'd done it uh, I didn't, and, and like you said you know I was an interesting question I, I didn't I wasn't a font of ideas that I was passionate to write about I really wasn't my mind or, or my heart was going someplace else and it did
2: mm. And what happened? You went. You went back to waiting tables for a while. Oh, uh, a yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, you know.
1: hanging, right? <laughs> yeah. Of
2: course. No, I get it. No, you got to do What you have to do. Well, how did how did the transition to writing for television happen, Robin? Well, tell, walk us through that.
1: Well, the, the, the short version is I came here to the University of Iowa um, to the Writers Workshop. So I started my life again, essentially. You know, I, I, I needed to reconnect with, I guess, academia, which had fled. Um, and here I am back again, interestingly now Here I met some people and uh, met my husband, the man who would be my husband someday. And we went out to L.A. together. It was kind of an idea that we would try to write for television um, or, or something or, or movies. We knew there was work for a writer out there. We were both writers. So we went out there, and a friend of ours from Iowa had started, had started creating television shows, And eventually, he asked me to come on one of them because he remembered my short stories. Um, and that was that. I mean, that was the beginning of a 25-year or more, I guess, uh, career in television. And I loved it. I loved that. I, I didn't. I really did love that.
2: Oh, I god I that I did. Um, Especially you,
1: what, when it came to The Sopranos, you know, and also an exposure was his labor of love as well.
2: You no, know, a fun show too, but gosh, The Sopranos is in such a another. I have a confession to make, Robert, about The Sopranos. When I remember when it first came on, I, in my dumbass know-it-all, you know style was like oh i don't want to watch oh that's just a television that can't be as good as you know martin scorsese doing goodfellas or the god it's just got to be some watered down imitation thing i didn't watch the Sopran. i'm embarrassed to say this but for years and then finally it, you know we had hbo and it was on you know an episode was on one night and i'm like oh shit i've never gotten into this show i've never even thought of what and, it, and 30 minutes into it, the first episode, my wife and I looked at each other like, oh Jesus Christ, we're so stupid. And, and, we did, <laughs> and we just did the binge watch and it was, it was like, oh my God, I didn't, I had no idea that this was so <laughs> <Funny>. profoundly great <laughs> and funny and complicated. As a writer, it, it must have been a, it must have been a blast to, to be part of that
1: team. It was. It was a blast. It was a blast, and it was like Rolling Stone and that it was a labor of love more than anything because, you know, it didn't air that first year, Um, so, sorry, I mean, we had taken a a pay cut to go work on a show because they only do 12 episodes, and then network TV, which is all really there was then, not now, you, you do 22 to 25 episodes, so when we went to... When we went to Sopranos, it was half as many episodes, so it was half the money. But we had read David's script, all of its permutations for network and for cable, and we just loved it. And when he had filmed the pilot, we saw that. And so when he, when it went and he asked us to come, uh, to be on it, we just left it the chance, you know. And and we did all the 12 episodes that we made after the pilot all in one year without airing. So we didn't even know if anybody would like it. And, uh, and so we just did it for fun. We did it like we did in the 60s. We just did it for fun. For fun. Yeah. And all of us, the actors and everybody, it was, just, it was just the fun of it. And also television, you know, is different from journalism. And that journalism is, is almost, you know, it's very intellectual. You have to use your mind a lot. You have to think a lot. And, and you do in television, but you have to use your heart, you know, and your body. It's, it's, it's also physical. So that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I loved it, because you could be dramatic and funny, yeah. you know. So, so that's what it was at The Sopranos. It was just this all-out boogie, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, David Chase, the, a notoriously difficult person, for, by all accounts, but, but, but worth it. Worth, worth going through the ringer with David Chase. Well, you know, I
1: worked with him my second year in the business, and we were friends. and hung okay. out together and uh, socially friendly with his, uh, you know, family, um, and, and so it's just that when you're with in that kind of a pressure situation for it was more than five years to do the five seasons, but we were, we were there five and a half seasons of the six. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you get on each other's nerves, and he was difficult in that. You had to watch yourself around him um, and be cool, and that wears on a person after a while. And I guess, I guess it just wore on me, and and, and I wore on him. <laughs> so yeah. It yeah. just, um, it was just one of those things, like a relationship that ends, um, and and it was hard. It was tough. That like
2: was. That was. Brother, let's wrap up by asking you what, what's next what are you would you ever are you going to write some more you've gotten great reviews for this new book are you done with television might, might, might you go back or are you uh just going to keep uh you know staying with academia or what what's next no, no
1: no academia although i'm really glad we're here and doing what we're doing this semester but uh I'm going to try and write something. I really loved writing this book. I don't know what kind of book I can write next, though. Can I send it to you when I do?
2: <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to. Talk to you again. I'd love, to. I'd love to. I'd love to read whatever you have planned
0: thanks for listening to Martin Dyke Undercovers for April 2019 our interview was with Robin Green about the only girl my life and times on the masthead of Rolling Stone this has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library it's a
2: thrill get you when you get your picture
0: on the cover of the